0: Hello and welcome to Giving Ventures, a podcast to help you grow your giving and change the world for the better. Each episode, we share innovative charitable efforts leveraging private philanthropy to solve public problems. I'm your host, Peter Lipset, Vice President at Donors Trust. This show is a product of Donors Trust, the oldest and largest donor-advised fund focused on helping conservative and libertarian donors of all capacities simplify, protect, and grow their giving. My colleagues and I talk with a lot of groups doing great work. This show lets us share a bit of what we learned with you, so you can discover new projects for your own philanthropy. This is a special time of year, and so we have a special episode for you. At Donors Trust, it is our busiest season. There are plenty of events, plus we have new donors opening donor-advised funds, as well as existing clients requesting grants at an alarming pace. You will hear throughout this episode that I sound a little off, and I apologize for that. That is mostly thanks to a whirlwind of events over the last two weeks, those hosted by Atlas Network, American Enterprise Institute, Policy Circle, Jack Miller Center, Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, my colleagues have been attending other events, including PragerU, Heritage Foundation, America's Future, and even the National Association of Estate Planners and Councils. We are thankful that there are so many groups that work to make this nation a better, stronger, freer, more prosperous place. And as we approach Thanksgiving, I thought it might be a nice time to create a giving cornucopia for you. I've invited on several of my Donors Trust colleagues to share organizations they are thankful for whether because of personal impact or from just being glad the group exists. It's a diverse collection and a reminder both of the broad power of private philanthropy and how each donor is very different. So enjoy these five glimpses into a variety of charities, and you will definitely want to listen to the end to hear the powerful personal story shared by my colleague and friend Greg Conko. All right, let's go. First guest today is one of our newest colleagues at Donors Trust, Lucas Dwelly. Lucas joined us from many years of running his own fundraising and nonprofit consulting firm, and is one of our philanthropic advisors, working specifically with the professional advisors out there—the CPAs and plan giving attorneys and uh, wealth advisors, etc.—who are advising so many other people on how to, to do the best with their wealth. And so Lucas is getting to know them so that they can recommend folks to us and, and hopefully continue to grow the family of Liberty. Uh, Lucas, we're glad to have you here, glad to have you as part of Donors Trust. Is there, what's the group you're thankful for?
1: Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I am thankful for uh, the National Review Institute. Uh, Peter, I just uh, completed the Burke to Buckley Fellowship Program at Chicago. And uh, as somebody who grew up admiring William F. Buckley, uh, watching old uh, Fire and Line uh, videos and reading National Review for, gosh, maybe a decade and a half now, to be a fellow in the program has just been really significant uh, for me in my learning, uh, reinforcing my core values, and also learning other perspectives from individuals that are in the movement.
0: So I want you to tell us a little more about the program, but tell us just, you know, in a couple sentences about National Review Institute for those listening who may not be familiar with it. I imagine many are.
1: The National Review Institute uh, started back in 1991 as a charitable arm of the National Review magazine. Uh, The mission is to preserve and promote uh, uh, Bill Buckley's legacy and advance the principles of free society through educational uh, programs and outreach. We have been together for the last eight weeks. The first was done via Zoom, and then we all started meeting in Chicago, a group of individuals. No one knew each other, and uh, we all started learning from one another, their perspectives. So when we think about what what the Institute's doing, it's really bringing together a broad range of ideas, of viewpoints, hashing them out to understand how we can move forward together as, not only as a society, but as a movement, and also learn from one another. And I think it's it's an interesting time right now with all the discourse that you can bring a group of people that come from different environmental backgrounds, which I believe that the National Review Institute was looking to do when they founded, and then to really talk about current topics, but also to go back and look at the legacy of Burke and Buckley, apply their readings, their thought process to current issues and problems.
0: And what does that let you do? I mean, coming out of the program, what do you feel you're, you're positioned to do, thanks to what the National Review and Institute has built with this program?
1: On a personal level, to hear what other people are thinking, Peter, and then to go back and uh, challenge some of those ideas uh, after the class, when we'd sit and we would retire to some place and, and uh, talk about things, and uh, not everybody stayed, but those who did, it became really the the after discussion of the program was really the most beneficial piece of it, especially coming off elections uh, that we had last week. Uh, a lot of people were passionate about certain candidates, what happened. Uh, and then to think to ourselves, w- if Bill Buckley was alive, what would he think during this time period? How would he address some of the issues that we're dealing from a from a movement to a party to just the overall country's direction? Uh, for me, it, it created the the vehicle to really think about um where I want to not only take myself but to lead my children, uh, how I want to give back to my community. So overall, I I think that it's a very unique program in the sense that, uh, not to be redundant here, but you really are bringing together a group of people with different backgrounds. There's attorneys, there's a uh, a Ph uh, an individual who's a Ph.D. Uh, who has three kids and that's her pride and joy. That's what she does every day. And then this was an outlet for her. You have me that was that was flying in for this specifically because it would help me understand better uh, how the legacy of the movement and to apply it to what we do now at Donors Trust.
0: Hmm. Now, they do this program a few times a year, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so folks who might be interested in it from a participatory standpoint haven't missed out. It's something they repeat. Is that right?
1: Yes. Right now they have a class going in Dallas. They uh, have one, I believe, in. Uh, Philadelphia, Miami. So it would be the five that they have right now. And they also have an online program uh, where they're bringing in cohorts across the
0: nation, which there is no geographic limit on the online piece. So people might be interested in participating as you did, as an actual fellow. Some people may just think, hey, this is a great idea, uh, and I want to put some money behind it. What kind of donor do you think would really enjoy connecting with NRI, either because of the Buckley Fellows Program or just kind of in big big picture? When you look
1: back and you think about the conservative movement over the last, say, fifty years, there's been uh, Ronald Reagan, Morton Blackwell, uh, Bill Buckley, Joseph Morris, uh, other people that have been in the trenches ensuring that we have a, that we push forward free society, free marketplace, and I think people that recognize that, uh, that want to help create the next generation of thought leaders. This program, what, one of the things I really like about the program, Peter, is the fact that they were not looking for people that were coming from a policy standpoint or from Capitol Hill. They were looking for mid-level practitioners that wanted to go and learn and expand, and almost like uh, a pay-it-forward type of project. You know, I go in and I, I complete the program, then I'm an evangelist outside talking to everybody about what I learned and what I went through. I think that's uh, it's, it becomes a force multiplier. So to that end, I think donors that are looking to invest in the conservative movement from a practical and academic standpoint would do really well to look at what the National Review Institute's doing. Um, There's a great deal of pride by each individual that belongs to National Review Magazine as a whole, but also the Institute, because truly the magazine will always remain. It is the uh, Institute that really helps push
0: Bill Buckley's ideas forward. That's great. I like that idea of it being a force multiplier. I think that's a a good summary. Well, Lucas, appreciate you sharing this little bit about your experience with National Review Institute. Thank you, Peter. Stephanie Lips is one of our philanthropic advisors at Donors Trust, and we are so happy to have her after many years of her working at the Atlas Network, who was featured in episode one of the Giving Ventures podcast. Uh, Stephanie, so glad you're here What is a group that you are thankful for?
2: Oh, Human Rights Foundation. How could I not be thankful for um, a nonprofit that's focused on human rights around the world?
0: Yeah, tell us a little bit about what they do. What's their mission?
2: They are 100% focused on human rights around the world, but unlike someone like Amnesty International, they're not fearful that they can't call out a socialist dictator such as Chavez or Maduro.
0: They have really brought to light a lot of... Exceptional people. Do you want to highlight any of those?
2: They actually do a lot of amazing work with freedom champions around the world. Uh, Many of us know Chess Champion, who was also their chairman, Gary Kasparov. But a good personal friend of mine um, that made a name for herself at Human Rights Foundation is Yanmi Park, the North Korean refugee. She escaped North Korea, and shortly after she came out of hiding in China, um, read many books on liberty. She's read Hayek. She's read Adam Smith. She's read Tom Palmer, David Bose's Libertarianism. And she just inspires me. She gets up on that stage, and I think of the life I provide for my children and the life that Mi grew up in. You know, lucky if she could have an apple every five years. Um, and I think of how she's out there speaking out against um, Maduro, and she's speaking out against the Iranian uh, regime, and speaking out against Cuba, and, Af- and the Taliban in Afghanistan. And what will we do without someone like that at the Human Rights Foundation to bring to light atrocities? They're human rights violations. In the with the Uyghurs in China, who are in modern day slavery. Um, to people that don't even have food to eat or are put in concentration camps in North Korea. The Human Rights Foundation brings to light these these atrocities throughout the world.
0: And it's probably no greater stage where they do this and where they highlight this than their big event every year that they do generally in Oslo. It's moved around a little bit, but a marquee event in Oslo. You have attended that. What is that like?
2: It's inspiring and heartbreaking at the same time. Um, It makes me appreciate all I have because you see people that are coming from dictatorships there in Africa. You see people coming from Iran, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, China, North Korea, Venezuela, Cuba. When you go to the Oslo Freedom Forum, you can actually talk to someone like Simon Lee. Simon Lee is Jimmy Lai's most trusted advisor. Jimmy Lai um, founded Apple News in Hong Kong and is a very prominent man in the Umbrella Revolution. He stood out there. He spoke out to the Chinese. Um, He is originally from China and came there because this is actually a great story, if you don't mind me just pulling aside a little bit. And you can hear this story at the Oslo Freedom Forum, and I think it's really important that I share it with you. Um, Jimmy Lai, as a child, tasted chocolate. When he was in China, he tasted chocolate, like a Hershey bar, stuff that our kids have all the time, Peter, you and me. Um, And he tasted it and he said, I've got to get, I've got to get to Hong Kong. I've got to get to freedom because if they have this, something that tastes this good, what more, what else could they have? So this man went from a man that was lucky enough to have a chocolate bar to being one of the wealthiest men in all of Hong Kong. And he believed in democracy. He stood up to the Chinese. And then Simon Lee is at the Oslo Freedom Forum telling, telling Jimmy Lai's story. That's what you get at the Oslo Freedom Forum.
0: Uh, our friends at the Acton Institute, as a brief aside, also, as you know, Stephanie, have a great new documentary out telling Jimmy Lai's story. And, uh, you know, he's in jail now and what's going to happen to him, we don't know. But it is a, such a powerful story, as you illustrate. What kind of donor do you think would be attracted to the work that Human Rights Foundation does?
2: If you care about human rights and you don't want the government involved in human rights and them deciding what they think human rights is, then I think you'd be interested in the Human Rights Foundation and maybe go to the Oslo Freedom Forum or maybe go to uh, one of their smaller events in New York if you don't want to you know, spend uh, spend a week in Oslo, <laughs> Norway.
0: That's great. Well, what they do is so important. It's a good reminder that the freedom we fight for every day the way we fight for freedom every day is very different than what people face all around the world and how how great it is that we have it here so stephanie thank you so much
2: and happy thanksgiving to all of those people around the world that cannot celebrate thanksgiving
0: There are only two people at Donors Trust who have been here longer than I have, and one of them is Chris Renner, who's our controller and oversees our financial operations, makes sure everything's above board and smooth, and uh, glad to have him here. Chris, tell me about an organization you are thankful for.
3: Sure. Uh, well, the organization I'm, I'm thankful for uh, today is a strong. It's called Strong Towns. It is a small nonprofit. Chuck Marone is the guy who founded it and, and is... Pretty much the core of the organization, and they've got a lot of a lot of other folks who uh, you know work full time or part time, uh, depending on how much capacity they have uh, at at uh, any given moment.
0: So Strong Towns is not an organization I know. So so tell us about it. So what is the goal? What's it doing? It's one of those things where it probably helps to describe
3: the problem that they are addressing, uh, and then then what the organization does to address it, and it will make more sense. The problem in the strong towns view is with the development pattern, the land development pattern in uh, the United States in particular. I guess North uh, North America in generally, it is excessively car oriented, and there's there's too much separation of uses, and it is it is not done something that is financially productive. So if you look, for example, at the way development took place before the car before the automobile was invented it was all development was was very compact everything was people could walk with within a town any urban area that existed if you let's say you know, pre-1920 or pre-1900 is built in a compact pattern where businesses residences and and, and anything else that is that is urban as opposed to you know that you obviously had farmhouses and, and things like that that were that were existed separately at the time but anything in an urban area it's 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 a very compact pattern uh, all the space is used to the maximum extent possible and that's something that's really financially productive because you do have urban in urban areas the, there are a lot of amenities some of which require a lot of infrastructure and you really need to have um, productive use of the land in order to support all of that um, what Strong Towns is concerned about is the post post World War II development pattern where the development you still have almost as much intensity in terms of infrastructure and amenities and you have much less intense use of the land that that is uh, it's meant to support all of that so that's that's the uh, big issue that they focus on and it's it's a uh, it's something that that I until until I started reading their work I was I would say I was I thought that you know urbanism and concern about development and stuff like that was was something that goofy hippies cared about and, and, uh, environmentalists and, and that sort of crowd. And, and I, and I sure wasn't, wasn't going to, wasn't going to, uh, had to more practical concerns than that, but the way they focus on the financial side of things too, it's, uh, it really made an impression on me and it's, and it's stuck with me. I think I've been, uh, I've been a regular donor to them for, for about six years. send them I send them a little bit of money every month. I've, I don't think, I've uh, been been to a couple other events. I don't think they. I think they have a national conference next year, which uh, which is going to be their first, and I'm not sure whether I'll make it to that or not.
0: Yeah, these these challenges are a lot more complex than they seem at first blush, right? And uh, what is their solution? What is it that if they are successful, that they will do?
3: Just move back to uh, to a more intense land use. Um, if you look at uh, and build on places build on the good places that you have. So for example, uh, right here in old town, Alexandria, where our office is, is, as uh, an example where that is the traditional development pattern, uh, has, the, the city has done very well in terms of using the, using the, using the grid, the bro houses, the, um, you know, the the way things were built historically and putting that at the most value use today. So it's a, it's a major tourist destination. And it's also a, an extremely fashionable place. a to live into. And that, that really is, is the, if you look at, uh, if you look at Alexandria city's finances, that's really what keeps it in good shape. And to lesser extent, you see that in, in Fairfax, in, this, uh, in the city of Fairfax where we live, um, they have, it's, they haven't done quite as much as Alexandria has, but there's very much a core old town and there's a lot, financially there's a lot that can be done with that in order to make it a really great place that that generally that builds that builds a lot of welfare for the the people who live there
0: so you think the type of donor that would be attracted to something like this is somebody who interested in urbanism and design and uh maybe even into the environmental kind of free market environmentalism arena
3: yeah definitely that definitely that and um and/or people who are um, fiscal conservatives might even find it interesting too. Um, there is really one of the things that uh, that Strong Towns has, has done a bunch is to uh, analyze land uh, in terms of value per acre, and you can go do this comparison in, in in any city you like. But invariably, you find that the historic downtowns have the most value per acre, and that's the best measure of, of what they're doing to support the to support town as a whole.
0: It's always good to hear about a new group. Uh, so Chris, appreciate you telling us about Strong Towns. Thanks. You're welcome. Thanks for that. Thanks for the opportunity. Carolyn Bolton has been with our team at Donors Trust for almost a year and a half now, uh, having come from the world of communications and marketing and even journalism, and now does communications and marketing for us. And we're thrilled to have her as part of our team. So Carolyn, tell me about a project or group you are thankful for.
4: Thanks, Peter. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great. Great to be here. And yes, so I got my start in journalism. Love um, Young America's Foundation and their National Journalism Project. It's how I got my start in the Liberty Movement, so I love them. Um, But the one that we're going to talk about today is American Compass, and I really love um, what they're doing and what they're all about. Uh,
0: Well, tell me about American Compass. What is it? It's a newer group.
4: Yeah, it's a newer group. They haven't been around that long. So they're my Amazon smile beneficiary, which is a little ironic when it comes to American Compass, because, you know, they're, they've been a little bit critical of Amazon because they argue that it's not a sufficient replacement for all the manufacturing jobs that America has lost over the years. But I just love how honest they are about not necessarily rethinking kind of a free market purism, but realizing, hey, you know, we don't live in a free market and we haven't for a very long time but they're real with people they acknowledge hey like american families individuals are, are struggling in some real ways and what what are some common sense things we can do kind of market-based that will help help families you know help marriage rates are plummeting birth rates are plummeting um the journal just had an expose on how it costs like three hundred thousand dollars to raise a single kid um higher ed aside <laughs> costs of higher education aside um it's just it's it's really hard these days, and um, they acknowledge that, and they bring together policymakers, uh, or lawmakers, policy experts to talk about these things, and come up with really great solutions.
0: Yeah, so it seems that the the family side, uh, maybe even yeah. you know, if you will, the social issue side of what American Compass is doing is is the thing that you think that they're really moving the needle on. Is that right?
4: Oh absolutely yeah you know they kind of acknowledge hey, you know we can't drive up the cost of higher education and then when you know people graduate college, hand them a sluggish economy and offshore jobs and you know struggle struggle to meet the milestones that our parents and grandparents um, met when they were our you know millennials age so yeah they're doing they're doing God's work. <laughs> and yeah Archbridge and Institute for Family Studies I think are all in the same vein just, in terms of trying to reverse just kind of warped perverse incentive structures that we have in America.
0: Yeah, free op as well. A lot of these organizations Mm -hmm. are really realizing that one of the gaps in the conservative movement and the way that we've been talking about things is we, it's not that we are ignoring the lower 50% uh, in terms of the wealth distribution, but we certainly don't talk about them necessarily as much or in a way that recognizes that some of those situations may be different than some others. And, and I think you're right. American compass and free op and Archbridge and some of these others are really shining a light on the diversity of folks out there and how sometimes the government intrusion in the marketplace really disrupts what we like to believe is a free market.
4: Yeah, totally.
0: So what do you, what kind of donor do you think would really be attracted to what American compass is doing?
4: I think, you know, people who grew up in a conservative or even libertarian home, um, Maybe religious background, um, you know, they 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 definitely sympathize more with conservatism and conservative values. But they realize, hey, there there's some things that are that needs to change. <laughs> um, you know, maybe they had children who suffered through the Great Recession and are getting pummeled again. You know, maybe they they're just tired of corporate buybacks <laughs> and want to reinvest in the workforce uh, and reinvest in people. Um, you know, people in lower income brackets report self-report being the loneliest of all Americans and just helping that income level just to succeed and thrive in the world today.
0: Well, before we sign off, a uh, congratulations to you and a thank you to you, Carolyn. Those who listen to the podcast uh, may hopefully sometimes go over to the website and read through the show notes or see those. And Carolyn is responsible for that and making sure that those thoughtfully get Put up every time. So we really appreciate your role in making this podcast successful.
4: Awesome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Peter.
0: We're going to close out with Greg Conco. Greg Conco is Vice President for Programs at Donors Trust and has done a terrific job of making sure that our grants processes go smoothly and that the grants, the main job of Donors Trust, which is helping to make sure donors can support the causes they care about. Getting those grants out the door, that is what he oversees and the team that he works with. And we are thrilled to have Greg as part of the team. Uh, Greg has an interesting group to talk about. Greg, tell me the group that you are thankful for.
5: I am thankful for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. My wife uh, and I give to the local chapter, of the Make A Wish Mid Atlantic, uh, but we're both big fans of the entire organization.
0: And this is a very personal selection for you because of your son Jack, who's a great guy in high school now, uh, had a vicious struggle with cancer a few years ago. Tell us the impact of Make A Wish and how that it, the impact it had for you, Jack and for you and Carrie. Uh,
5: thanks, thanks for the opportunity, Peter. Um, And I think it's important to start at the beginning because you've got to put this in context. Um, It was uh, back in the summer of 2018, Jack was 13 years old uh, and he was diagnosed with a type of cancer called lymphoblastic lymphoma. Uh, Carrie and I were, were devastated, right? It's not the kind of news any parent wants to get. Now, on the one hand, the doctors tried to reassure us that in kids Jack's age, this particular type of cancer, they can treat it very aggressively. So there's a very high cure rate. But what treat it very aggressively means is that that treatment can be just brutal. Uh, Jack was in and out of the hospital for nearly a year. There were weeks when he was getting IV infusions four days a week. He was achy and nauseated. and Sometimes he was in, in very serious pain. And now he got very good care, and he is now in complete remission. He's been off treatment for two years. Almost, it'll be two years next month. That's awesome. But, but it was really, it was really, really tough on him. And one of the most important things that helped him get through the ordeal was the Make-A-Wish Foundation. You know, lots of people have heard, at least heard of, the Make-A-Wish Foundation. They arrange for kids with critical illnesses to get to get a wish, right? There's some experience or something as a way of lifting their spirits, giving them something to look forward to as they go through a, a pretty rough patch. So in, in Jack's case, he loves cooking. And uh, he's been a huge fan of the celebrity chef Alton Brown since he was very young. I you know from, from the crib uh, his mother and I actually raised him on watching Alton Brown on television and uh, for the better part of a year laying in the hospital bed that's what Jack did to entertain himself he watched the Food Network on television so it was an obvious wish for him and the Make-A-Wish Foundation arranged for Jack and, and of course Carrie and me too to um, go to Atlanta and have dinner with Alton Brown and his wife Elizabeth at one of their favorite restaurants and the, the whole experience was just amazing. It was a really just, you know, a dream come true for Jack. And here, this is the point that I really want to emphasize. Honestly, just as important as getting the wish itself was the months of sort of dreaming up the possibilities, right? Should he pick this or should he pick that? What about meeting players on the Pittsburgh Penguins, right He's a big hockey fan or you know his his oncologist said, you know, dream big. So there were ideas that we kicked around that were just completely implausible. My favorite was getting a couple of the Monty Python cast members together and reading through old skit scripts, right But just the ability to imagine all of these wonderful experiences, even though, you know, we knew a lot of them were totally unrealistic. But just being able to to, to spend time dreaming about this was a huge boon for Jack Spirits, right? When he settled on Dinner with Alan Brown, Make-A-Wish people told him they were going to be able to do it. Just the anticipation of it all made him I mean, just giddy with excitement. and. You know, you really can't imagine how important it is to have moments like that, right? When you're, you're afraid your child is, right, literally deathly ill. You're afraid he's not going to make it. Hours every day he's crying because he's in pain. Something like that where you can spend time and dream about possibilities and exciting things, it, it's huge. And I am not aware of that. It's, it's possible that other organizations exist, but I am not aware of another organization that does what the Make-A-Wish Foundation does. And it, that's why it, it's so important to, to carry in me.
0: It is a really unique niche in the marketplace. You know, there's this misperception out there sometimes that at Donors Trust, we only give to policy groups. And I think you're bringing this organization up and your support of it and you know the support of other people at donors trust other donors trust clients support of it and groups like it is such a reminder that part of the reason we do support all that policy stuff is to create the freedom and the space for groups like this to exist and to make dreams come true to help people without government, without uh, the need for that kind of interference, but really to, to change lives in a positive way. You, in your seat with the grants, see a lot of these groups come through and, and probably have a better understanding than most of the importance of them.
5: Yeah, we, we make not quite half of our grants to traditional philanthropical organizations. These are churches and synagogues and schools and hospitals and food banks and all sorts of traditional organizations, most of which, as you say, right, they are they are doing wonderful things, not relying on uh, taxpayer money. They are relying on voluntary contributions. And in fact, Make-A-Wish, almost all of their money goes into the programming and goes into the granting the wishes for kids. Mm. And at the chapter level, they are principally staffed by volunteers. Oh, wow. It, it, you know, it's it makes me. Uh, I I come out of the policy world, um, and I'm very happy that uh, a majority of our grants go to conservative, libertarian, free market, public policy organizations. Right, because that's been my bread and butter for 25 years. But I'm also very very pleased to to be able to give to organizations like this that do civil society work that is paid for by voluntary contributions.
0: Now it's kind of goes without saying why somebody like you and Carrie might want to support Make-A-Wish. Uh, we hope there's not too many people listening who have had to deal with what you have had to deal with, what Jack's had to deal with. But what kind of donor do you think is out there who might enjoy supporting a group like Make-A-Wish?
5: Well, certainly I think anyone who is interested in, in children's health issues or health issues more broadly, right? If you're the kind of person who gives to uh, medical research, Carrie and I, we give to cancer research or, or organizations. You know, we support the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. I think those organizations are indispensable. But um, given what the Make-A-Wish Foundation does and its special niche in taking care of kids and and helping deal with their mental, emotional, spiritual well being as well as their physical well being, um, you know I I think it's a wonderful grantee. I encourage all our friends uh, to to give to the Make a Wish Foundation. And if if you're the kind of donor that likes to give to support improvements in health, especially children's health care issues, I would encourage you to make the Make-A-Wish Foundation a part of your, your giving portfolio.
0: Well, Greg, I appreciate you sharing the experience that you and Carrie went through, that, that Jack went through, the experience that you had with Make-A-Wish. I think it's, uh, it's great to hear and it's encouraging to hear and a nice way to end the show. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. <laughs> But with that unique lineup of organizations, there is no way to characterize the theme of this episode other than gratitude. Gratitude for the way organizations serve to strengthen us, those we love, and our communities. Gratitude for groups speaking uncomfortable truths and allowing the voiceless to shout for freedom. Gratitude above all for the power of philanthropy. I know you are a giver. You wouldn't invest time to listen to this podcast among the millions available to you if you weren't are you giving with donors trust if not and want a way to streamline your giving in a smart principled private way well let's talk there is still time to open a fund before the tax year ends though frankly no time is the wrong time and we're standing by we will release this episode just days before Thanksgiving in 2022 it is that most unique and special of American holidays I hope it is a time of gladness and gratitude for you and for those you love I am grateful that you take time to listen to Giving Ventures and, for some and hopefully more of you, to be part of the Donors Trust family. So enjoy your turkey, pass the green beans, and we'll talk more soon.